Welcome back to the Anti-Social Studies Podcast, a place for people who wish they had stayed awake in high school. First off, I am sorry that it has been so long since my last episode. I have been without a voice for the past week and a half, and as it turns out, being able to speak is a pretty big component of making a podcast and wrangling a classroom of 35 teenagers, so it's been real fun. But I'm back with my sexy phlegm like Phoebe from Friends, so let's go. Last time, we explored the early modern era in the West, or we missed two whole continents. Europe began modernizing, challenging traditional views in art, science, religion, and politics. They ventured out across the Atlantic and irrevocably altered the previously isolated Americas. Sorry, Aztecs. But what was going on in the East? How did the powerhouses of the Middle East, Africa, and Asia react to these changes over in the Atlantic world? In short, Europe has risen and can now rival Asia and the East won't see it coming. Remember that if you like what I'm doing, please subscribe to my podcast so you'll know when the next episodes are up. And if you really like what I'm doing, then please, please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give me a review. I really appreciate it. All right, enough business. Let's get to history. Today, we're going back to the early modern era in the East, or as I like to call it, they didn't get the memo. We'll look at China's early attempts at exploration, the Islamic empires that both did and didn't get the usefulness of guns, the impact of Europe's new power on Africa, and the rise of two young players who do adapt to the Western ways, sort of. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glenkler. Settle in, and let's go back in time. Act 1. China had explorers too. When we talk about the age of exploration, it's all focused on the Europeans and the Atlantic world, but China had explored the Pacific world long before the Europeans made it cool. Remember that Shi Huangdi sent Taoist scholars out to explore new lands and discover the elixir of life, and they might have ended up colonizing Japan. And during the Tang Dynasty, they expanded their influence over most of East Asia, especially Korea and Japan. And 100 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, the Ming Dynasty was sending out an explorer named Zheng He to assert Chinese dominance across Asia and East Africa. By the way, it's spelled Z-H-E-N-G-H-E. It looks like Zheng He, but I promise it's Zheng He. He traveled on the largest ships in the world, showcasing Ming technology and shipbuilding and navigation long before the Portuguese Prince Henry set up his navigation school. Zheng He was born in the Himalayas during the Mongol era. His father served as a minor official in the Mongol government, although he was actually a Persian Muslim. During the Pax Mongolica, land trade along the Silk Road flourished, but after Genghis Khan's death, the infighting amongst the different Khans made land-based trade more dangerous, encouraging various empires to invest in sea-based trading to avoid the Mongol hordes. When Zheng He was only 10, the new Ming dynasty, which had just taken back control from the Mongols, invaded and took over his homeland, killing his father. Zheng He was castrated and given to the emperor's son as a servant. He and the prince became very close, and when he eventually came to rule as the Yongle emperor, which means the emperor of perpetual happiness, he made Zheng He his chief of staff. This emperor was ambitious. He conquered Vietnam, extended the Great Wall, and built a new capital called Beijing, which included a forbidden city where only the emperor and his servants like Zheng He could go. Side note, a few years ago, a Starbucks was put in the forbidden city in China to serve all the tourists that visit. So I guess the only thing that's forbidden now is good coffee. Zing. (laughs) 
The emperor also wanted to control Indian Ocean trade, and so he tasked Zheng He with building a fleet and venturing out. For comparison, while Columbus's Santa Maria was just 85 feet long, Zheng He's main ship was 400. Zheng He ventured around the Indian Ocean for the next 30 years, bringing back the heads of rebellious pirates, luxury goods from India, and giraffes and zebras from Africa, among other things. Over the course of his seven voyages, he made it all the way to the southern tip of Africa, up the Red Sea, into the Persian Gulf, through the Philippines, and Indonesia. If he'd only had an Instagram account, he could have gotten so many followers. Zheng He died on his seventh voyage in his 60s, and the Ming emperors almost immediately ended all sea exploration. Why? This drives me crazy. Like, China could have ruled the entire Indian Ocean if they had wanted to, but instead their massive ships were abandoned and left to rot. Craftsmen slowly forgot a lot of the art of shipbuilding techniques that they learned, and China retreated inward. So what happened? It looks like there was conflict between the Confucian scholars and the eunuchs like Zheng He of the emperor's court. The eunuchs supported the voyages and were seen as a threat to the Confucian scholars' supremacy, who believed that China had everything they needed already and wanted to focus on internal issues. Remember, they're the Middle Kingdom. Confucians, in general, see merchants as the lowest on the social ladder— unethical, not producing anything of their own, and dealing with outsiders who are not as worthy as the Chinese people. Also, most of China's threats lay to the north beyond the Great Wall. It looks like they abandoned ocean exploration in favor of shoring up the north so that another Mongol invasion couldn't happen. This is also why they never took gunpowder technology to the place the Europeans did. Guns were relatively inaccurate at that point and were not as suited for the type of warfare they fought against nomadic horsemen. The point is that the Europeans weren't the only ones who were capable of exploring and conquering the world, but the other powers, especially China, had more immediate concerns to deal with and not as much motivation to venture outward. Confucianism focused them on internal issues, and they already had everything they needed trade-wise, so they closed up shop and let the Europeans dominate the seas. But it's fine, I'm sure it won't come back to bite them later. Act 2. The Sort of Gunpowder Empires In the Middle East, three Islamic empires were ruling that all get nicknamed the Gunpowder Empires because they somewhat begrudgingly take gunpowder technology from China and Europe and use it to try to dominate the region. Out of these three empires, they all are faced with the issue of how to adapt and change to the rising tide of Western power. And since they are all Islamic theocracies, they're pulled between ruling from the Quran and essentially sticking with what worked in the 600s or adapting to the times, forsaking some of their religious convictions. On the question of how to adapt and survive this new early modern era, one empire straight up failed. One did okay, but screwed itself in the end, and one does pretty well, at least until World War I. So let's start with the bad news. In Iran, there was an empire descended from the Persians called the Safavids. They were Shiite Muslims stuck between two powerful Sunni empires, the Ottomans to the west and the Mughals to the east in India. The Safavids are the most behind the times. They are still stuck thinking that land-based power along the Silk Road is the way to go. Their capital of Isfahan is hundreds of miles away from water, and they're slower to adopt gunpowder technology. They prefer their traditional swordsmen on horseback. These guys are called the Kizilbash, or red turbans, and they carried long curved swords. And these were the elites of their military, but over time they're just not going to be able to compete against armies with guns. In India, there's another Islamic empire that has replaced the Delhi Sultanate. This one was founded by a guy named Babur, who was a descendant of Genghis Khan. He finally achieved what his ancestor had never been able to do, conquer India. 
and he named his new empire after the Persian word for Mongol, the Mughal Empire. The Mughals maintained control of India for a surprisingly long time, from the 1500s up until the early 1800s, through a series of talented leaders and well-organized administration. The Taj Mahal was built during the Mughal Empire by Shah Jahan. He built it as a mausoleum to his wife who had died in childbirth. Like, dang, live up to that husbands everywhere. But the most famous leader of the Mughal Empire was a guy named Akbar. Akbar tripled the size of the empire and made a lot of pretty good attempts to unite Hindus and Muslims together. He eliminated the tax on Hindus and appointed them to high positions in the government. He also invited scholars from all over the Muslim world, similar to the Abbasids in Baghdad, and he compiled a library of over 24,000 works from throughout history. Akbar even tried to create a new religion called the Divine Faith that combined elements from all the major religions in the world and encouraged universal tolerance. It never got off the ground. At its height, it only had 19 followers. Not 19,000. 19. Turns out people are pretty serious about sticking with their religions. Like, who knew? Now, learning about the Safavid and Mughal empires brings me to an incredibly important question. Where the heck is Aladdin from? Guys, when I started this podcast, I had no idea how many times I would reference Aladdin, but this process has made me realize just how important that movie is to me and to all of human history. But like, seriously, what civilization was Agrabah in? From everything I can tell, Disney did what they always did and just mixed up a bunch of different historical references to make some generic and non-existent Middle East-y place. But I still want to talk about it because it's Aladdin. So the original story comes from 1001 Nights, or Arabian Nights, which was compiled during the Abbasid dynasty. So was it set in Baghdad? I mean, it's definitely a Muslim society because they use the term Allah for God, but the fictional city of Agrabah was ruled by a sultan, so it has to be later than the Umayyads, who were ruled by a caliph. And it wouldn't be in any Persian civilization because they're ruled by shahs, so I guess that eliminates the Safavids. So Aladdin and Jasmine take a trip to a whole new world in China where they see fireworks, but those were invented long before Islam rose, so that doesn't really tell us anything. And they live in the desert, but near snowy mountains, which rules out the Arabian Peninsula. So, no Abbasids. Also, Jafar is a popular name in Shiite Islam, so that implies that it's somewhere in the area of Iran, but we've already established that they weren't ruled by the sultans. Ugh, ugh, I don't know. But what really gets me about this, and really like keeps me up at night, is Jasmine's tiger. Like, where did it come from? Because that implies that they're either somewhere in South Asia, like India, Unless Agrabah is such a key trading post that they were able to get a tiger from the east. Like, oh, I have no idea. Okay, anyway. The Mughal Empire is going to enter a slow period of decline once they start to let European trading companies have influence. It's at this point that we need to have a quick aside about how the Europeans are going to be able to slowly inch their way into these massive and impressive Asian civilizations. Let's focus on the British. They saw that Asian civilization was well-established and it wouldn't make much sense to try to conquer them. It would take too much money and manpower to control China or India, for example. So instead, they set up a company to just get what they wanted, trade. Enter the British East India Company. You know these guys. They're the bad dudes and Pirates of the Caribbean. And you'd think the bad dudes would be the pirates, but whatever. The company was formed to break up the monopoly that the Spanish and Portuguese had on the spice trade. And they were finally able to do this after the Spanish Armada, or the Spanish Navy, was defeated by the British under Queen Elizabeth. The company competed with mostly the Dutch East India Company, and they defeated them for power in India, earning trading concessions from the Mughal Empire. 
They set up shop and became the main trader of luxury goods like spices, silk, and indigo across the Indian Ocean. The Mughals had internal issues to deal with, and they were not particularly threatened by this new company. Again, they understood the importance of sea-based trade, but they didn't totally realize just how powerful Europe had become. Another big mistake. We'll come back to this next era, but over the 1800s, the British East India Company is going to gain more and more influence on the Indian subcontinent, eventually replacing the Mughal Empire with the British Raj. So, what about the Islamic Empire that did get the memo and better adapted to the rising power of Europe? And that brings us to the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was founded by a Turkish leader named Osman. The empire is sort of named after him. At its height, they ruled all of Eastern Europe, North Africa, Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and the Arabian Peninsula. So, kind of a lot. The Ottoman Empire also continuously expanded its influence in the Christian East from the beginning. The Byzantine Empire, remember, the half of the Roman Empire that survived, eventually fell to the Ottomans in 1453, and Constantinople officially becomes Istanbul, and we can all sing that annoying song. The Ottomans' most famous ruler was Suleiman the Magnificent, who was sultan from 1520 to 1566. And I really respect this guy's complete one-upping of all the the greats out there in history. Like, you think you're great. Well, I'm magnificent. And he was. He used the government to direct massive art and architecture projects that beautified Istanbul and other major cities. Ottoman art flourished, especially calligraphy, architecture, and silkwork. Side note, according to Muslims, the only person who can create or depict human life is God. So Muslims are not supposed to create art of the human form at all, like not draw people or paint women or whatever. That's why most of their art is focused on writing, rug making, weaving, or architecture instead of, say, painting like the Europeans. And when they do decorate things, they use intricate geometric designs since they can't just sit down and paint Mona Lisa like the Italians can. Suleiman also defeated Christian kingdoms throughout Eastern Europe, but was held off at Vienna. And man, I have no idea why everyone's getting tripped up at Vienna. Like, first the Mongols and now the Ottomans? Bravo! Like, maybe you should have sent 1930s Austria some of that same energy. Too soon? Too soon for a Nazi invasion joke? All right. Note, this was Suleiman's attempt to conquer the Holy Roman Empire. I know, I know, I said I wouldn't really get into it because it's really confusing, but... When the Ottomans push into Eastern Europe, Suleiman negotiates with some of the Christian kings, and the Holy Roman Empire kind of starts to break apart into three different regions. One is ruled by the Habsburg family in the north and the west, Austria. One will be ruled by the Ottomans along the Danube with their main city in Buda. Pest will come later. This is Hungary. And another small region is called Transylvania. And yeah, I didn't really care about the other stuff either. That was really just one elaborate setup to make sure that we all know that Transylvania was a real thing. Like, it's basically Romania today, but it just blows my mind. Okay, back to the Middle East. Suleiman the Magnificent did get the memo about the rising importance of sea power, and he built up the Ottoman navy and became the powerhouse of the Mediterranean. The city-state of Venice tried to stop them, but eventually had to negotiate a peace. But just a decade after Suleiman's death, a coalition of Christian forces led by Philip II of Spain. He's the same guy that Martin Cortez, Hernan and Malinzi's son, worked for. Anyway, he defeated the Ottoman navy at the Battle of Lepanto. So the Pope had been trying to create a Catholic alliance of states for years. 
For some context, the battle is happening just decades after Martin Luther's 95 Theses, so they're reeling from the loss of millions of followers, and they're definitely not okay with Muslims patrolling the Mediterranean. Like, that is one heathen too far. The Christian navy was smaller but better trained, and they defeated the Ottomans. Among the wounded for the Spanish was a guy named Miguel de Cervantes, who would go on to write Don Quixote, an incredible work of satire making fun of the bygone medieval era. So between Charles Martel against the Umayyads and Philip II against the Ottomans, the Muslims are never able to make their way fully into Western Europe, but they've left a lasting influence on Spain, Eastern Europe, and Mediterranean islands like Cyprus. And the Ottomans were doing a way better job of adapting to the new way of doing things, but there are two examples that highlight why they were never quite able to achieve global dominance like the Europeans, even if they'd wanted it. The first revolves around a group of people called Janissaries. So when prisoners of war were captured, they were converted to Islam. For the most part, only non-Muslims would have been prisoners of war because the Quran stated that you could only fight a war in defense of your faith. So fighting against other Muslims would have been haram, or forbidden. They'll eventually find a loophole and fight against Shiites, especially the Safavids to the east, but for the first few centuries of their rule, the Ottomans focused most of their conquering on the non-Muslim world, basically the Byzantines. Anyway, these mostly Christian prisoners of war were converted, trained, and became members of the military, and ultimately the sultan's elite guard. And the reason they were able to become powerful was because the Ottomans seriously undervalued some new military technology coming out of Europe and China. They were early adopters of guns, but they did not realize their true power and potential, so they gave them to the Janissaries. Let me rephrase this. The Ottomans conquered places, kidnapped young men from their families as prisoners of war, converted them to Islam, then gave them elite military training, and armed them with guns. And for a while, this group was the only group in the military with guns. The traditional cavalry preferred their swords. To me, this is a perfect example of the Asian world underestimating Europe and their new tools. Over time, the Janissaries obviously are able to leverage their knowledge of these weapons to grow more powerful than the traditional military elites, and by the late Ottoman Empire, they will rival the power of the Sultan himself, often using their specific set of skills, like Liam Neeson, to take out Sultans who do not give them benefits and to put people on the throne who will. So there's a lesson for you. If you're going to conquer people and subjugate them, don't give them exclusive control over the most powerful weapon on the planet. Pro tip. The second example that showcases some of the reasons why the Ottomans were not fully able to adapt and rise along with Europe is taxes. Ugh, taxes. I wish they weren't so important to history so we could never talk about economic things, but they really are, and so we have to, but I'll make it quick. The Ottoman Empire's tax structure was fixed. For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to say that a person in the Ottoman Empire had to pay the equivalent of one pound of silver a year. This is probably either incredibly high or incredibly low. I have no idea. I'm just sure it's incredibly wrong, but let's go with it. So this structure is fine as long as the global supply of silver stays relatively constant. It's a good system for the Ottomans. They're like, the only thing that could screw up this silver tax system would be if, like, I don't know, someone were to discover two entire continents that we didn't know existed and then find, like, insane stores of silver in those mythical places. I mean, that'd be crazy. Wait, what? What's that? Wait, Columbus? Who's Columbus? Where the hell is Potosi? Peru? That's not a real place. Well, dang, now we're screwed. And they were screwed. Because since they were an Islamic theocracy... 
Any changes had to run through a group of Islamic scholars who would consult the Quran. This is Sharia law. It's the thing your uncle probably has been forwarding you emails about for the last few years. The Ottomans were advanced and forward-thinking in a lot of ways, but they were pretty inflexible when it came to making changes that went against the way things were in the Quran. So, they don't change their tax structure. So I'm still paying one pound of silver each year, but now the value of that silver has gone way down, and that's a problem. Over time, the government is losing money, and this is going to be one of the reasons why over the next era, they're going to earn the nickname the Sick Man of Europe. Ouch. We'll come back to the Ottomans briefly in the next era, but just know that over this next few hundred years, they're still trucking along, but slowly declining due to the rising power of the Janissaries, their declining tax revenue, and a series of corrupt sultans. We'll come back to them fully in World War I when they choose to side with Germany. Never really a good choice as far as world wars go. Act 3. Africa Responds to the West A few episodes ago, we talked about all of these massive, powerful trading kingdoms that were thriving in Africa. Many near the Sahara and along the East Coast converted to Islam and became major players in Afro-Eurasian trade. They continued to be a major component of new trade routes in the early modern era, but in a way they weren't expecting and that spelled disaster for the African continent. Why did Africa become the major source of slaves? It's a question that no one ever really asks. We just learned that slaves came from Africa. And isn't that problematic that no one ever questions this? Slaves could have come from Europe or the Middle East or Asia. And they did, in smaller numbers. But after the discovery of the New World, Africa becomes the major supplier of slaves, especially in the new transatlantic slave system, mostly because slavery was already relatively common in Africa before Europeans arrived. There was a thriving trans-Saharan slave trade from the 10th to the 15th century, during the Kingdom of Mali, for example, and slaves from eastern and southern Africa were traded across the Indian Ocean out of the Swahili city-states. But still, why Africa? And this is a murky question with an even murkier answer, but there are a few components that play into it. For one, the concept of private property was relatively non-existent in Africa. Without the ability to, to distinguish your place in society based on the amount of land you own, you would do it by owning other things, like people who served you. And a lot of times, the amount of land you were given to work and provide for your family was based on the amount of labor you could gather. So an easy way to rise in prominence and get more for your kinship group or tribe was to gather free labor. Also, a lot of Africa's wealth lies in natural resources that are really difficult to obtain. Think gold, salt, and other minerals. They require an enormous amount of cheap manual labor, so kingdoms would use conquered people or prisoners to work in the mines. The African economy was built around slavery already when Europeans arrived, and one of the ways that these African trading kingdoms tried to adapt to the rise of the West is by supplying them with slaves, the way they had to Muslims and other Asian civilizations. The only thing that had changed, which they didn't realize at first, was the scope. Up until this point, slavery was common throughout world history, but most slaves worked on small farms or in the household. And I'm not discounting that slavery is always bad, but often earlier slaves were treated like part of the family. Roman slaves were buried with the family they served, for example. And this idea of hereditary slavery that we now have in American history was really rare, meaning you might be a slave, but in most of world history, that didn't condemn all of your offspring to slavery for eternity. 
And even though a lot of slaves came from Africa, the institution of slavery was not racialized like it became in the Americas. For example, Europeans had enslaved each other at times before 1492. But when the Europeans arrived, some African kingdoms, especially along the West Coast, took advantage by trading in various natural resources like they had for centuries. And when the Europeans expressed an interest in slaves to go work in their plantations in the New World, they sold people like the Africans had always done. But Europeans needed so many more slaves than any other civilization in world history. And the Europeans did not honor many of the trade agreements that had already been negotiated, eventually seeing all Africans as fair game. They were able to assert this dominance thanks to superior weapons, especially guns. Soon, the Middle Passage, or route that took enslaved Africans to the Americas, was well established, and it's estimated that over the course of the slave trade, 11 million Africans were taken to the New World. Almost 2 million died on the journey, packed into the hulls of the ships without fresh air or sanitary living conditions. And almost half of the enslaved Africans brought to the New World went to Brazil to work on the sugar plantations. So, remember how the Chinese figured out how to package tea using paper so that it lasted longer? The Europeans got hooked on the stuff. Sugar had been known to the old world, but it was incredibly rare and expensive. But the American environment, especially the Caribbean and Brazil, was ideal for sugarcane production, which could also be converted into molasses and rum. Sugar was important as a luxury good to trade and prove your wealth, but also as a commodity the Europeans wanted to improve the taste of their tea and food. It's that simple. Over the years, I've looked for a more satisfying answer to the question of why people were willing to conquer, subjugate, and enslave entire continents for things like sugar and tobacco, and honestly, I've never found an answer that makes me understand it. It turns out status and privilege are the only motivation most people need. All along the way, Africans resisted enslavement. On the ships, there are many accounts of attempted mutinies. The most famous example is the Amistad. It's the name of the ship. On a journey from Cuba to Brazil, 53 slaves successfully rebelled, killed their slave traders, and took control of the ship. They were intercepted by an American ship and put on trial. Former U.S. President John Quincy Adams defended them, and they were found not guilty and set free. But sadly, this outcome was really rare, and many Africans found that the most effective form of resistance was simply taking away the Europeans' wealth, meaning themselves. It's been said that sharks would follow the slave ships in anticipation of the dead bodies that would be thrown or jump overboard. So many people jumped off the ships that they started putting netting all the way around to catch people. And in many of the African religions, the afterlife was your homeland. So when you died, you returned to Africa. Think about that scene in Black Panther where he's buried and visits his ancestors. So to many enslaved Africans, death was a far greater alternative than what awaited them in the New World. But your body had to be whole to be able to travel to the afterlife. So when anyone on the ship died, either by suicide or other causes, the slave traders would cut up their body and scatter them in the ocean, trying to eliminate suicide as an enticing alternative by taking away their spirit's ability to travel home. And this fact is especially horrifying. Like, African people were enslaved even in death. Today, we associate slavery with black people. And in the not-so-distant past, racists have justified the subjugation of black people by arguing that they were somehow less civilized or more suited to manual labor. And hopefully you've seen at this point that this is just not historically accurate. 
African civilization was thriving before the slave trade, and the only reason why most manual work around the world was being done by people of color was because the Europeans made it that way. And this is why it's important that we learn history and constantly ask why when we learn it. Don't ever assume that the way the world is now is the way it's always been, and it's definitely not the way it has to be. Act four, new technology, it's good to be young. Powerful, long-standing land-based empires are having mixed success adapting to the rising power of Europe. China and the Middle East have closed themselves off to a lot of new Western ideas, but there are two young countries who are going to orient themselves more toward Western ways, but with a few big exceptions. And these countries are Japan and Russia. Japan had developed similarly to China during the post-classical era. Even though they were never conquered by China, the Japanese set up a lot of their administration similar to that of the Chinese emperors. And this was known as the Heian era, and it was a golden age of Japanese culture and art. While China is inventing everything and Christians and Muslims are crusading, the Japanese court is flourishing. One of the great works of world literature was written during this period called The Tale of Genji by a noblewoman, Murasaki Shikibu, and she tells us a lot about life in the court of the emperor. And it sounds relatively similar to that of absolute monarchs in Europe. But this time period falls apart and gives way to a feudal era of Japanese history, and that's what's going on in the early modern era. The island of Japan is controlled by rival warring clans who compete for control. Eventually, power is consolidated under the Tokugawa shogunate. The shogun is a military leader, and at this point, they rule on behalf of the emperor. From the feudal period on, the Japanese emperor really isn't going to have much power, which is part of why he's typically left alone and not overthrown. Fun fact, the Japanese imperial line is the oldest continuous hereditary monarchy in the world. Listen to this. The current emperor of Japan today descends from the same family that was ruling Japan in 660 BCE. BCE. That means... He is from the same imperial family that was ruling Japan before Cyrus the Great was born. What? So the Tokugawa shogunate isolates Japan from the outside world, which honestly might have been a great strategy. Like if you're a smaller, younger country in this time period, you might not want to bring too much attention to yourself right at the time that Europe is out exploring and colonizing everyone. The Tokugawa shogunate closed off all trade with the outside world, except with the Dutch through one city. They were so mistrustful of outsiders that they made the Dutch sleep on their ships at night. They also forced out all Christian missionaries and executed Japanese Christians who had converted. The Martin Scorsese film Silence covers this in excruciatingly slow detail. So because of these Dutch foreigners that live in this one port city, a school of study develops using the outside knowledge from Europe that's nicknamed Dutch Studies. So even though the Japanese cut out foreign cultural influence, they're open to the West technology and scientific innovation, and this is going to give them a foundation of Western knowledge that will help them grow rapidly once they're finally forced open by the U.S. We'll come back to that later. Meanwhile, in Russia, they have the Mongols to thank for their unity. Ivan III rose to power when he joined together all the different Russian princes and forced the Mongols out. That's why he's called Ivan the Great. But at that point, the Tsar is basically just the most powerful prince. His grandson, Ivan IV, does a lot more to take power from the feudal lords and other princes and consolidate it into an absolute monarchy, calling himself Tsar. So, for some context, 
The Russians, as Orthodox Christians, viewed themselves as the true successor to the Roman Empire. So the way they saw it, Rome fell, then Constantinople, and so Moscow grew into what they nicknamed the Third Rome. So they also named their leader after the Roman emperors. So Tsar, C-Z-A-R, is just the shortened Russian version of Caesar. I think that's really cool. Ivan IV makes a lot of enemies when he takes power from the nobles, and so he also grows incredibly suspicious over time, especially after the death of his wife, whom he believed was killed by the nobles who don't like him. Ivan goes on a rampage, murdering nobles and eventually killing his own son because he believes he was part of an assassination plot, and that makes him Ivan the Terrible. After the Ivans, the Romanov family is going to step up to the plate and provide Russia with every czar until the last one who, spoiler alert, is going to abdicate and then lose his head during the Russian Revolution in 1917. But the guy we want to focus on today is Russia's greatest ruler and the one responsible for westernizing most of Russia, Peter the Great. I love Peter the Great. So Russia has always been a confusing place, like even in geography class. Is it Europe? Is it Asia? It's both. And from the beginning, Russians have had a cultural identity crisis, constantly being pulled between its Slavic roots from Eastern Europe and Western European advancement and culture. Peter the Great did everything he could to pull Russia away from the East, realizing that for better or for worse, the West was the future. In 1697, he traveled to Europe disguised as a Russian sergeant to study European institutions. For context, when Peter traveled to Europe, the American colonies were growing. William and Mary have just finished ruling England and firmly entrenching their constitutional monarchy. Poland and the Ottoman Empire are fighting a war that Poland will win, marking the beginning of the slow decline of the Ottomans. I included that last one just because I felt like Poland needed a win before we get to the 20th century. So, in the late 1600s, Peter the Great is touring Europe in secret. He spent four months working at a shipyard in the Netherlands, learning shipbuilding techniques from the Dutch East India Company. He also visited Great Britain, where he toured schools, factories, arsenals, museums, and even attended a session of Parliament in disguise. And this is partly what makes Peter the Great unique. Whereas the other Asian powers are hiding themselves away, ignoring Europe, Peter does the opposite— He visits them and probably sees firsthand just how advanced and powerful they'd become. When he comes home, he immediately begins reforming the military, realizing that, like, they got to get up to speed. He implements a massive shipbuilding campaign and then marches off to fight the Great Northern War against Sweden. Russia wins, giving it control of the Baltic Sea and access to a warm water port. Peter recognized how crucial it would be to have a powerful navy, but all of the Russian ports before this time were frozen half of the year. But now, his new city of St. Petersburg, how Alexander the Great of you, right, to name it after yourself, is open year-round and will serve as his window on the West. Politically, Peter the Great maintains an absolute monarchy. I mean, obviously, why would he take away his own power? But he institutes a universal table of ranks that promotes within the government based on merit instead of nobility. He also puts the Orthodox Church in Russia under the power of the Tsar. But my favorite thing about Peter the Great is that he forced his nobles and members of the government to dress like Europeans. When he returned from his year-long tour of Europe, he held a dinner for all of his high-ranking nobles where he personally shaved each of their beards off. He instituted a no-beard policy, which angered the Orthodox Church, who believed that having no facial hair was blasphemous for some reason. Eventually he eased up, but he did keep a beard tax, angering early modern Russian hipsters everywhere. 
Peter the Great was really unpopular because of all the changes he instituted, but I really think modern Russia has him to thank for a lot of its success. In this way, I see him as really similar to China's Shi Huangdi. Yeah, sure, Peter built St. Petersburg in a swamp and killed tens of thousands of peasants building his new city. But he also standardized Russian law, reformed the writing so it would be easier to read, and set up Russia for enormous success. The one thing he didn't do was set up Russia's economy. The Russian economy at this point was still mostly based on feudalism. Serfs worked the land, and Russia wasn't really producing anything of value. The way Peter saw it, the economy was really just to support the military, because that's where the power was. He didn't see the value in developing an export-based economy and getting too involved in global trade. So Russia's economy is going to lag behind the rest of the West, slowly building resentment among the peasants and especially the serfs still tied to the land, who don't see any change or new opportunities like poor people and lower classes in the West will find with industrialization. And since it's still an absolute monarchy, the unhappiness in their lives will slowly get blamed entirely on the czar. But it's fine, it's fine. I'm sure the czar will be fine. So, the West and sea-based power is on the rise. China and the Middle East closed their doors. Africa made the mistake of letting the Europeans in and now can't get them to leave. Japan shuts the door too, but they let the Dutch slip them notes about cool technology from time to time. And Russia keeps its political and economic system the same, but they have windows looking out on the West and are adapting a lot of their country to these new ways. But anyone in the East who thought Westernization was just a passing phase is going to be sorely mistaken next era when Europe sets its eyes directly on Asia. What could go wrong? To be continued. For a full transcript of today's episode and pictures of some of the things I mentioned, check out www.antisocialstudies.org and join me next time on Antisocial Studies as we go back to the modern era in the West, or as I like to call it, you say you want a revolution. And don't forget that if you like what I'm doing, please subscribe to my podcast so you'll know when the next episodes are up. And if you really like what I'm doing, then go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give me a review. Thanks. Thanks.